0: Well, among the many blessings and realities that will make heaven wonderful will be an uninterrupted unity that we will enjoy as believers. We'll be joined in heart and mind and belief and in practice without division. We get a large taste of that here and now. There is a real measure of unity by the Spirit, but sadly due to sin, a lack of understanding, being in different places in our spiritual growth and other factors, there are disagreements and sometimes very sharp divisions that take place, not just between believers and unbelievers, but within the church, among true believers. That's been uh, true throughout church history, it's true now, and scripture bears witness to the fact that this took place in the early days of the church. And we have a record of such an incident here in Acts 15, a division between two good men, Paul and Barnabas. They had been a missionary team, they had preached together, They had witnessed the Lord save sinners. They had planted churches together. They had strengthened the brethren together. They had uh, ministered together in Antioch, as you might call them, the dynamic duo, as they taught uh, the people there, the disciples, the word of God. They no doubt knew each other well, loved one another, complimented one another very well. But now they're having a strong, sharp disagreement with very serious consequences. Luke informs us about the focus of the disagreement. You saw it very clearly in the text. I don't have to spend time opening it up. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him on the trip to check on the saints and the churches that they had planted. Paul has a very different opinion. He says that's not a good idea. If you go back to Acts 13, we want for time's sake this morning, but that Mark had left them early in that mission. So Paul says, look, Barnabas, he left us mid-mission He didn't go with us to all the works, and therefore, he shouldn't go back with us. Barnabas was not persuaded, convinced that Mark ought to go with him on these return visits. Both men obviously stood their ground, believing what they think and thought should happen, and neither would budge. The text literally says Paul kept insisting. And so you can just envision in your mind that this wasn't just some momentary, okay, we agree to disagree there was some insistence, which brings us to consider the frustration of the disagreement. Luke writes in the first part of verse 39 that when he says the contention was sharp between them, that literally means it was provocative. The word can be used in the New Testament and is used in a positive way to sort of prod one another along in positive ways, but it can also be used to speak of stirring people up in a bad way. You're poking one another. It's very sharp. It's irritating. It can provoke to anger. There's an intense disagreement. I know none of us has ever experienced that, but we've read of such things, right? And I'm sure that it grieved the hearts of these two men who loved each other to find themselves who have served faithfully together in such a state where there's such a sharpness between them. And it's obvious from the text that they were unable to work this out and come to some kind of medium or compromise And so the text tells us about the fruit of the disagreement. In verses 39 to 41, we read that these men went separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark and he sails off to Cyprus. Paul Paul chooses Silas and he departs seeking to further his ministry as well. And if you're thinking, man, I wish they could have worked this out, that that's that's a good thing to think. It's a natural response. It's a Christian response. In fact, it could be a strong indicator that you have the love of the brethren in your heart because that's what we all hope for. When we're in a proper state and frame of mind, we want unity. But that's not what happened in this case. There was a separation of these two men. And inquiring minds always want to know about this text. This is the question, right? Who was right and who was wrong? Was it Paul or Barnabas? Well, let me just say this, as far as I can tell, there's no indication that either Paul or Barnabas were objectively sinful in the positions they held regarding Mark. In other words, they both both may have been operating off of certain biblical principles. I won't go into all of those. There may have been sin in their hearts. There may have been some sin in the words, often when there's a sharp disagreement and there's a multitude of words, sin is what? Not lacking. Not lacking. But it doesn't seem that either man was directly opposing the revealed will of Christ in the situation. However, I personally believe there are reasons to believe that Paul was the one who was most acting in accordance with wisdom and principle. I say that based on a few things. Mark's departure on the mission may have actually been a very serious matter. When it says that Mark went home, I doubt that that meant that he went home for an emergency or for a family situation. Uh, verse 38 could be translated with the emphasis, if I understand it correctly, that he actually deserted them in the mission. And it wouldn't make sense for Paul to be so adamant that Mark shouldn't go with him if there was a legitimate reason. For him to have left. I don't think he's just saying, listen, he wasn't with us, and so it's not proper for him to go with us, but that Mark had left them, probably unable to handle the demands and difficulties of missionary life. And he wasn't, the mission hadn't even gone on that long, if you read Acts 13, before he left. And then if you read after that point in Acts 13 and 14, you're thinking, boy, if he folded under the pressure that early, He certainly would have folded under the things that they faced later on as recorded in those chapters. And so it very well may be that this was a very serious matter, that Mark had deserted them midstream, and that it wouldn't have been wise at this early point to take him back on a mission. But also, there may be here an intentional contrast in the context Look over at chapter 16. This is where some chapter divisions are not always the most fortunate things. The Bible says, Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him, Paul, would have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. There may be a contrast in the context between Mark and Timothy. And later on, Paul commends Timothy to the church at Philippi, one of the churches uh, that would have known of Timothy, and talks about how Timothy kept his heart on the things of Christ and served faithfully with him as a son to a father, and so Timothy may be set forth in the text as a contrast to Mark. Not to say Mark wasn't a true Christian, but that Timothy was further along in his development and had proved himself as a faithful man. Another thing that may point to Paul being mostly in the right is the commendation of the church when it says that when Paul and Silas departed, they were recommended by the brethren into the grace of God. My understanding that could be interpreted as referring to Paul and Silas, which could indicate that the church agreed with Paul's position. And it's worth mentioning that it is Paul and Silas that is the feature after this incident. They're the focus in their ministry, not Barnabas and Mark. Well, there's another issue when you look at Scripture more broadly that could have been influencing Barnabas to make this decision. And I call it the family connection, the family connection. We read this over in Colossians chapter 4. Gives us a little clue, and though we don't want to read too much into it, it may be a little clue as to, to an issue that was uh, apparent in this situation. Aristarchus, Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister, son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. And you read that and you think, aha. Could it be that Barnabas was under the influence of a family connection in this situation, not only feeling loyalty to a brother in Christ, but to a safe family member? To put this in modern terms, could it be that Barnabas knew that Thanksgiving would not be pleasant with the family, as it were, if he didn't act in Mark's favor? Perhaps he knew he would have gotten the grandma special if he did not act in accordance with what he knew would be best for the family. Now let's just face it, the deep emotional attachment and loyalty to family members can sometimes blind us to biblical truth and wisdom. We can find ourselves in situations where we're be- torn between what we know is the right thing to do, and yet we're also feeling loyalty to family and to friends in that situation. That very well may be. We don't know for sure, but it could have been a factor in this case with Barnabas and Mark. So there are several indicators, at least in my opinion, may disagree. That seemed to weigh heavily toward Paul being mostly in the right. But whoever's in the right and whoever's in the wrong, let's put that aside. What can we learn from this division between two good men? First of all, it happens. Now, when I say it happens, I don't mean that what is prescriptive is or what is descriptive is prescriptive. I'm not suggesting, well, it happens, it just happens, don't worry about it. No, but it does indeed happen. There are times when Christians, including ministers of the gospel, have perspectives and convictions concerning matters that are completely opposite, that they're mutually exclusive, and sometimes they can be so firmly held that working together closely is not at least presently a practical possibility. Now, that's hard to accept, but it does happen. And when it becomes apparent that there's no way currently to resolve it, a separation may be practically necessary as painfully as it may be. Now, we're not told in this text how Paul and Barnabas responded to one another after they decided to go their separate ways explicitly, but thankfully, this is one of the cases where the Holy Spirit has been kind enough to drop us some hints as to what happened after this, some possible hints. And it is from these hints that I believe we can learn some important lessons of how we should respond when these kinds of disagreements and separations happen among true Christian men or women or a mixture of the two. First of all, we should be gracious and commend one another as much as possible. We should be gracious and commend one another as much as possible. First Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Now, before I read what's in this text, do you believe it's true that we have a tendency in situations like this to try to make ourselves look better than the other person? Is that a natural tendency? Why is that? Because we don't want anyone to think that the division is in any way owing to a deficiency or some kind of blindness in us, right? Now, indeed, it may be true in a given situation. There's a separation where you don't bear any culpability or any major responsibility or as much as the other person, at least. But even when that's the case, there's something in us that wants to make sure that other people know that that's the case, right? We can't end the conversation unless we make sure people know, you know, I'm not the problem. I had biblical principle on my side. I was mostly in the right. And what better way to do that than to defame the other person and decrease their estimation in the eyes of others? And that doesn't always require a frontal attack, does it? We can take shots at a person's character in more subtle ways, causing others to lose confidence in them. Can you imagine, I'm not saying this happened, but just imagine using your sanctified imagination. Maybe you could hear Paul, let's just say, if he took this attack, there's no evidence that he did, as we'll see in a moment. But, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that Barnabas is not saved. I'm not saying he's a bad guy. It's just, it's just that, well, well, never mind, I don't want to say. You know, I don't, I don't want you to think bad of him. All right, well, what have you just done? You've dropped the seed. Or you go, well, I've just got some concerns. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong to ever say, but we've got to judge our hearts' motives, that heart motives that we're not trying to drop these little crumb trails. And we can package it in a way that is so spiritual, or we can ask leading questions. You know what leading questions are, right? It's where you drop the crumb trail with questions to lead people to the conclusion that you want them to embrace. You can hear if Barnabas took this approach, for example, he'd say, well. What do you think of Paul in his ministry? Someone says, well, I I appreciate it. Well, what do you think? Well, I don't, um, why do you ask? He says, well, do you ever think that Paul is driven sometimes for Paul's glory? That it's more about Paul than it is about Jesus? I'm not saying that's true, but that whole thing that went down with Mark, I saw a side of Paul that I've never seen before in my life. I think I detect a little narcissism. I'm just trying to gain, I'm asking you because I don't want to be on an island by myself. I want to gain some perspective, right? And then you say, well, never mind, never mind. Forget I said anything. I'll just take it to God in prayer. Maybe where you should have left it to begin with. You see, all of this can be subtly leading people to conclusions. You want your view to prevail and you want to come out smelling like a rose. And so there's this strategy to tear down the other person. Well, there's witness in the New Testament that this is probably not what happened in the case of Paul and Barnabas. 1 Corinthians 9 6, a little hint. Or, I only and Barnabas have not the power to forbear working. Now, Paul is developing in the context an argument that it is right for those who preach the gospel to be paid for their services, right? He's developing that argument, and in that, he clearly refers to Barnabas as a genuine minister of the gospel, who is worthy of his hire and who should be paid for his gospel services. He is putting Barnabas in a positive light. And some suggest that this is evidence that Paul and Barnabas made up and reconciled. But that might be an unnecessary assumption. It's the assumption that they needed to be reconciled to start with. Just because they split and went different directions does not mean that they went in different directions hostile to one another. That's reading something into the text that's not there. This could be bearing witness to the fact that Paul was determined to speak favorably of Barnabas from the beginning and to put him in a positive light, that they left determined to commend one another and be as gracious as much as possible. Could you imagine having a conversation with Paul after the split? And someone says, well, I heard that you and Barnabas are not working together as a team. And Paul says, that's right. And the person begins to badmouth Barnabas and says, well, I've always wondered about Barnabas. And can't you hear Paul saying, now stop right there. You're not going to speak bad about my Barney. You're not going to speak bad about him. He is a true man of God. We may have had a major difference of perspective I'm not going to hide that fact, but he's a good man. He's a true man of God. And you know, there may have been something else that restrained Paul from taking pot shots at Barnabas and getting everybody on the Barney is bad train. Perhaps it could be he never got over what Barnabas had done for him. You remember what Barnabas had done for him at the very beginning of his own Christian life, when the church at Jerusalem was afraid that Paul might be coming in as the Trojan horse, as a false believer, going on, you know, his attack from the outside, not working as well as maybe coming on the inside and destroying the church. Who was it that brought, who commended Paul to the church in Jerusalem? It was Barnabas. I can hear Paul tell that person, you know, his real name is Joseph, but he was given the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. I've never known a man with a bigger heart. Isn't it sad when there are splits, there are often spits. And one of the things that happens is when these kind of things happen, we tend to magnify people's sins and faults and shortcomings while downplaying the amazing good they've done in our lives. We give all our list of issues about them, and then we only give just a few honorable mentions to the ways God has used them in our lives. And why do we do that? because we've got to build a narrative. And if you're gonna build a narrative to tear someone down, you leave out or downplay the good and you magnify the bad. And I would assume Barnabas was committed to do the same thing for Paul. Can't you hear Barnabas using your imagination when someone wants to speak bad about Paul and he stops him dead in his track and he said, listen, I saw the man stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead, get up the next day and walk 60 to 90 miles to do it all over again and then come back to the place he was stoned. Now, what what man driven by selfish principles would put his life on the line for other people like that? I may have had a disagreement with Paul, but he's a man of God, and I can tell you this, though I disagree with him, I know this about Paul. He was operating on what he believed was right. I've ministered with the man. He loves God. Now, does that mean, brethren, that we never recognize and confront sin in one another? Remember, it was Paul, when he was in Galatia, withstood Peter to the face and did not mind writing in Galatians, and Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. I'm not talking about sweeping sin under the rug because we have the good old boy system, but I'm talking about a commitment to be as gracious as we can and to do what we can without stretching the limits of truth to commend one another. So that's one. How should we respond? We should be gracious and commend one another as much as possible. But then secondly and lastly we should trust the Lord to use the separation to sanctify us and build his church. We should trust the Lord to use the separation to sanctify us and build the church. For example that text that I just read and you're hearing a moment ago in Colossians 4:10 to 11 let's just read that more fully for a moment. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister, son, to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, who are the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Paul, who had earlier said, Mark is not ready, is saying, Paul, this young man, Mark, is an encouragement to me. He had good thoughts of Mark, especially later on. Paul saw the progress in this young man's life, Mark's life. For we read this in 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 11. We read these words. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only look at Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to, profitable to me for the ministry. Do you see the contrast? A man who once said he's not ready, he is saying now he's useful to me for the ministry. Bring him to me. Or what about the little hint that is dropped for us in the last chapter of First Peter? where we read these words. First Peter five thirteen, the church that is at Babylon elected together with you saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. And of course you know that it's believed that it was Mark who, when Mark wrote his gospel under the tutelage and guidance of Peter. In Rome, and Mark now stands as a blessing to the church through all the generations, this young man that Paul said he's not ready. God had obviously done a mighty work in this young man, making him fit for the ministry. Now, putting two and two together, how do you think the Lord brought this young man to maturity? Do you think it might have had something to do with Barnabas taking him under his wing? As a time of maturation, Who knows, it may have been, we can trust that the Lord in his wisdom knew that Mark would not have flourished on that missionary journey and that the Lord used this time of separation for Mark to mature to such an extent that Paul says, bring him to me. He he names him. I want him. He's useful. Again, just using our sanctified imagination for a moment, can't you imagine Paul and Barnabas meeting up at Camel Bucks for coffee one day? Maybe Paul reflects and says, Barnabas, you know, perhaps, I don't know for sure, the judgment day will tell. Maybe I sinned in some of my perspectives. But I tell you what, what the Lord did in this young's, young man's life is amazing. Maybe Barnabas would have reflected and said, Paul, I was determined that he should go with us, but now I see God's wisdom in this separation. Perhaps he wasn't ready and God used that to mature him. And they're sitting there with tears in their eyes. Now, we don't know if such a conversation ever happened, and it's only conjecture. But here's what I would say if those kind of conversations ever happen, you can't burn bridges. You can't burn bridges. I'm not saying a bridge burnt can't ever be rebuilt. But brethren, when people often do and say things when separations occur, they burn a bridge and it's a lot harder to burn a bri- to rebuild a bridge than it is to cross it. I'm not saying that's impossible, but it takes much longer work to undo the many things that have been said. So that means that when we don't see eye to eye on certain perspectives, if it's a clear matter of sin, we have to address it. But if it's a clear matter where the perspectives are different, we interpret something differently, and it's leading us into those ways, and the separation is sharp, and we may have to go our separate ways, let's do our best to be gracious and kind and commend. Let's do our best to know, you know what, we can't see it now, but the Lord is up to something. And Jesus will build his church. He's ordained this ultimately. doesn't excuse our sin, but he is sovereign enough to overrule this for the good of everyone involved. And I trust many of us have been in the way long enough that we've seen God's wisdom in these ways. Things that have happened that in the time were heartbreaking, but then as we look back, we can see how the Lord has used it, taking this person here, taking that person there, and then hopefully there's reconciliation and you're able to say God knew what he was doing. What a Lord we serve. Let's praise him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, Lord, when divisions come, Lord, help us to know the distinction between when one another is in clear clear violations of your will, sin needs to be addressed. And that, Lord, when there may be, because of remaining sin in our minds, darkness of understanding, perspectives, that there may need to be practical separations at a certain level. But Lord, give us the grace of Paul as he would still speak highly of Barnabas. And Lord, to always remember that this is a lot bigger than what we're facing, that you're committed to build your church. And help us to be patient to see that take place in time. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.